Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to a Britflix Fright Fest preview podcast. And today's guest, please introduce yourself. Hi there, uh, Jeffrey Lando, the director of Suspension. Okay, now can you give us a brief synopsis of what Suspension is about, please? Absolutely, I'd be delighted to. So, Suspension is a movie about Emily, who's a uh, high school student in the U.S. and is bullied a lot in high school because a decade ago her daddy went crazy and murdered a bunch of people. Mm. And uh, he's institutionalized now. And so she's got these demons and is bullied by other kids and works them out in this sort of gory comic book uh, where she lives this fantasy life where her dad sort of as this avenging angel comes out from, breaks out from the prison and, and murders her, these like... You know, these people in her comic book. But then, of course, that night, it comes true. Or does it? So what? So the comic book characters she's drawing that are getting killed are real people that are giving her a hard time in the real world? A little bit, yes. Exactly. Okay. I mean, she's just telling she's exactly. And the whole thing, she's got a little brother that she really takes care of who's a little... <clears throat> who's, mute, who's mute. And uh, she... Um, He's a big horror fan, so she's telling him this story, and we keep kind of cutting back between her world, which is like a cross maybe between you know the world of Carrie and the world of Halloween, yeah. and um, and then this fantasy world where she's like a real horror fan, and they are, and they're kind of telling a classic slasher tale again, <laughs> like maybe Halloween slash Maniac. Okay. So we kind of like cross between these sort of like two worlds and sort of like these two realities these two movies and then of course we start to play with that um and it was really i mean this movie just i mean that's what the movie's about right on a sort of a superficial level and but i mean really fundamentally um 
It's a movie I have been wanting to make for a, do- a dozen years, believe it or not. And I'm, this is my 13th movie as a director, and it was okay. kind of supposed to be my second movie. Wow. And I sort of like, we were going to make this movie as a follow-up to Savage Island, which yeah. Kevin Mosley, the screenwriter, and I had had made for, you know, like $20,000 back in 2002 and did did well in the festival circuit, won a bunch of awards and uh, kind of got me started as a filmmaker. But we were always going to make this sort of like, it was going to be called Sitter's Night. It was going to be our follow-up. And we had this idea, like, just as Savage Island sort of updated the uh, Backwoods Horror movie okay. by taking The Hills Have Eyes and sort of transposing it into the Northwest and updating it with today's themes. Oh. Uh, we were going to take Halloween in this case and and update it. Like, how would you treat that today with, like, the themes and, and like, the issues of today? But working off of the, the bones of another great movie, but, you know, now a slasher. Yeah. Instead of backwards horror. So that was our strategy. And we developed this movie, Sitter's Night, and we were literally going to go to camera with it back. I was financed. I mean, very low budget. We we're going to do it for 150K, shoot in 35 back in 2004, 2003. Okay. 2000, no, it was, no, sorry, it was literally, it was 2005. Okay. And we were going to go to camera. We're literally two days away. We tech scouted it. We had PAs. We had like the entire crew, you know, everything was locked. And then suddenly it all fell apart on us. And our lead actress got hired out, like booked up over those dates by 20th Century Fox, who didn't want her in this little independent movie because she was in their other movie. And and I made, and people were offering me real money. They're like, oh, the script's good. You know, we'll, we'll give you a million dollars to make this movie. You know, don't go make it for a low budget. And, and I just kind of like decided to pull the plug on it. And that we would like get it financed and do it again a few months later. And of course, guess what happens? It never happens. You never get the money. And a decade goes by and I'm just busy making other movies. And always this was like the one that got away. Right. I should have made this movie. And it was like this, this monkey on my back, you know, like I owe this movie, you know, <laughs> I owe this movie. So finally I kind of was in this position where I was able to just say, okay, we're making it happen. And we did it. We did it on a low budget. Um, but, uh, I, you know, a decade had passed and literally we, you know, our contracts to go shoot our day 2000, May, 2015 with our crew. And I have contracts from May, 2005 with crew still kicking around. So it's like a decade later to the week. <coughs> right. Before we go into more detail about, about suspension, yeah. so, sorry. Um, before we go about the process of it, uh, sure. tell me as if 50, 50 is equal parts scares to equal part to, to equal parts gore. What would be the ratio of your movie? Well, that's a strange thing. That's a that's a ter- that's an awful ratio to me. Like gore, it, like you know, if you look at, I don't know what you would consider. I can, I can, I'm going to say I can, I can add to that from the podcast I've done already. Is people yeah. throwing in percentages of mystery and and psychological? So if you want to split that hundred percent up different ways, you can. <laughs> well, because gore gore is like. It's, it's, it's accenting, right? You, I mean, you want it, you know, it's, it's like, it, it's, you have to have it, but it's really should be an instant, uh, in my opinion. Like, you get into the thing where some movies you get the gore tableau, like, okay, after the kill, we're gonna, like, stare at it for a while. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you have the movies 
I've seen that are more extreme where it's like, we're really going to get into it. And like, all sequence is like about gore. It's like a gore movie. That's like the, what it's about. It's almost pornographic. It's like, let's yes. get into this gore thing. And that's definitely not like, we're definitely away from that. Like I was not interested in kind of the pornography of that. On the other hand, um, in the movie, like our, our, the character, cause a lot of the movie is in her fantasy. Yeah. She is like any slasher. Like one of the things about slashers, right? It's key thing about slashers: sex and death. Sex and the like. The it's it's tied with the sex. Like the knifing when the maniac kills you, it's a sexual thing. Mm -hmm. And and what is that about? It was like this, you know, Puritan issue, or like, ooh, you're bad, you know, transgression. Teenagers having sex get punished. But like, I think in present day, it is a little bit more nuanced. And for us, the main character was someone who was. She's a virgin and she's afraid of sex because sex is like a, 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 a kind of a weapon in today's society. Like it's used as a form of domination mm. and, uh, and there's a lot of rape and it's something that I think a lot of teenage girls may be afraid of. Um, and I figured that anyway, whether, whether that's true or not, that this character is certainly afraid of it. And, um, that, so it's like kind of being penetrated so that the knife, when the knife goes into a person, it's like, it's pornographic because for her, it's a substitute for like the sexual act, okay. right? So we do need to see it in the same way that like in – you need to see, you know, to be crude, the cum shot in like a porn scene. Like you need to have that. And if yeah. you look at any of the great Tom Savini movies, you're always going to see like the head get split open by the axe. Like you're going to cut to that, but it's going to be there for an instant. Yeah. Right. It's literally like 12 frames or like eight frames. It's incredibly fast. They're going to build the whole prop and do it and you're going to see it, but you're just going to get a glimpse of it. One reason is, of course, because the effect wouldn't stand up to sustain viewing. But the other reason is that's all really you need because it's really your imagination. You want to like just get a glimpse and let the imagination take over. Of course. Like what's more effective. So I really kind of ascribe it's, it, you know, different movies are different. If I was doing a gore movie, I'd get into the gore. It's not like a personal taste thing. But it's what this movie called for. So it's like, to me, like, you have to see it. But it's like a really fast, it's an instant. Like, there, there is no satisfaction if I don't see that knife go in and the blood spurt. Like, you've got to have the, again, the cum so, shot in a way. So what you're saying is but, there's, there's, graphic, yeah. there's graphic stuff, but we're not, we're not pouring over it. It's, we're definitely go graphic. We made the, we did, we built the props and we destroyed them and we did that stuff mm. because it was like essential to the whole movie. You know, it wasn't like because we like want to see it. And there was one actually sequence, one character in particular who was getting killed. And in like the first cut, I was kind of like the stabbing was going over and over and over again. I like stab, stab. I like saw I had three of the stabs and then it was like her shirts getting increasingly bloody and like blood was spurting onto like the cookies next to her. And we had this whole like montage sort of like cutting back and forth through all that for lasted like. Not that long, like eight seconds, that kind of thing. But it just watching people, I realized, you know what? These people, like, yeah, you could get into that, and it kind of felt good and worked. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, this character had was so well kind of interpreted by the actor that even though this character she was playing is being killed as sort of a despicable person and sort of cartoonish, yeah, we still felt real empathy for her. And that when I felt as a storyteller, I got into like, hey, let's enjoy how we're ripping her chest apart. 
it felt like I wasn't respecting like the fact the audience is actually really empathizing with this character. Okay. Like sometimes you're surprised. I find as a filmmaker, like you invent these characters and do these situations all make believe, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh my god, the audience is really like believing, like they're in this. This is a real person to them. And I think sometimes as filmmakers we fall prey to like let's do the fun effect, the cool effect, or the cool joke, <laughs> but we shatter like the drama because yeah, we yeah, yeah. people it's not real. No, I think but you're very right there. I think it's a mistake of a lot of horror films that that they get too excited with with what you, what's possible as opposed to what's necessary. With what's superficial. And they don't realize that the audience is actually on a deeper level. They're actually engaged in this like it's a real person. It's tragic for them right now that this old lady is dying. Like they're actually, it's not like fun laughing, even though you are. You're like, ha, 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 look what I'm doing. They're like, tr it's tragic to them. So that's fine because you that's the point of horror is to inflict a little trauma on people. Mm -hmm. But when you start to make a joke, like enjoy the juiciness of it, it's like you you do not realize that they're in a tragic, you, you're not connected to your audience anymore. Now, look, we've given lots of teasers. Do so you want to tell when and where people can see suspension, <laughs> suspension at breakfast this year? Yeah, well, it's playing Monday the 31st at 12.50 p.m. at the uh, Prince Charles Theater there off of... Um, Leicester Square, right? Is it that is how you pronounce it? It is. It is Leicester Square. Yeah, very Leicester Square, yeah. And I hear it's an amazing theater, and I'm very excited about it. I mean, it, Fright Fest is such an amazing opportunity to be invited to Fright Fest, and uh, I'm just, you know, really thrilled. Yeah, well, really. like, I, like I was saying before we started, uh, Fright Fest began out of mm -hmm. the Prince Charles Theater, and, you know, the Prince Charles Theater is kind of, is, uh, is booking, a, booking a trend in terms of how people view people want to go out to the theatre. It's got lovely sort of, um, what do you call it, like the, the seats are really comfortable in the main theatre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, well, the other thing about suspension is, um, <clears throat> unlike my first film, Savage Island, Savage Island was like this kind of great story we had, but I was like willing to shoot it on a micro budget and have it look sort of like rough because, and I thought it would make it more visceral, like the handheld video camera, that kind of thing. It kind of did. But, in the case of suspension, I was really out to create this fantasy world and atmosphere is such a huge part. And we put a huge effort into the cinematography and the color grading, and the sky replacements. I mean, I worked, I mean, I did a lot of this myself for like well over a year just on the post-production of it. And I'm very proud of how it looks. And I think that's it's the kind of movie you really want to see on the big screen because it's, I, I think, I mean, if you look at the trailer, You'll see it's 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 a bit of a. I'm very proud of what we kind of I created. No, it, look, it looks great. Yeah. Now, just let me yeah. rewind a bit, given given the, the 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 genesis of the whole thing that you told us. Um, yeah. And just for me, thinking about the the screenplay. Now, in 2005, when you were ready to go, you had yeah. you had a screenplay. Yeah, it, it was like draft that, seven or eight or whatever at the that time. That screenplay did that get put in the fridge? Or did that screenplay continue no, to, to, it continue develop? to develop, right? Because okay. like we were going to go to camera that fall, like a few months yeah, later, yeah. right? Yeah. So we were kind of still revising it a bit, and then that fell apart, and it kind of like fell by the wayside. But then someone else optioned it because and was excited about doing it. We had like maybe three different producers come on at different times and try to find financing and develop it and there'd be more drafts with each producer would like you know suggest changes or rework or and then when i sort of got regained control of it uh we went through more drafts and it transformed so much what would you say were the uh, hardest challenges to resolve in terms of storytelling for uh, for suspension 
well, suspension ended up evolving into this thing. Like we end like the movie we're gonna make was Sitter's Night. The movie okay. we made was Suspension. Okay. And okay. the reason it's got different titles because they're actually very different movies. Okay, so right. the 2005 idea completely shifted in the 10 years. Well, you you would recognize it. Like, I could show you that screenplay, and mm -hmm. you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's the same. It's the same movie on a lot of... I mean, and it isn't at all the same movie. It is and it isn't. I mean, you'd certainly recognize a lot of the plot, okay. right? I got you. Like, the same characters. The characters are there, the same names, you know, the same plot, a lot of the same scenes. But it really is a completely different movie in terms of like what is actually happening, which is kind of a fascinating part of the process. I've learned that a few times now. Like this whole playing with reality thing wasn't part of it. The comic book wasn't part of it. Um, really? I'm not, he wasn't even like her father originally. He was like maybe her father or there was going to be this reveal at the end that he was her father. We kind of like established that solidly at the beginning. Um there were a few twists in there that happened at the end that were just not part of it. Mm. You know, an interesting thing about screenwriting, if you ever hear the story, and it may be apocryphal, but, um, you know, The Sixth Sense, mm -hmm. right? M. Night Shyamalan's masterpiece, The Sixth Sense. It yeah. was uh, just a phenomenal movie. Well, the story goes that the whole twist at the end, and sorry, spoiler alert. Mm -hmm. I've seen <laughs> um, it a few times. You won't spoil it for me. Yeah. Well... <laughs> That twist was not um, in the script until like draft 44 or something like that. No, no, I've heard, I've, I've heard and speak about it. And that's, you know, and it's hard to imagine that movie without that. <laughs> you know, like, what was that movie then? Like, there's no point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it was completely unimaginable. What That, that would be not an interesting movie. Oh, no, uh, so it was kind of like that in a lot of ways. But I like, but that's that's the fascinating thing. I think that's the thing that differentiates trying to write a screenplay from a novel, in the sense that you you can make decisions to change screenplays that have that wonderful ripple effect, and then you can do nothing with it, and then suddenly you'll go, "This is all I need to do," and suddenly it's like you've 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 struck oil, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And then then all of a sudden you think you have. And then, of course, <laughs> as a writer, you know, you come back to it six weeks later and you're like, my God, what was I smoking? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I it, it is. It's a continual process of like thinking you're a genius and then realizing you're an idiot and then sort of like going back and forth between the two. It's, best to, make a it's best to make a coffee for the minute you think you're a genius. It's best to walk yeah. away. <laughs> That's a good time to walk away from whatever you're doing. <laughs> Well, look, of course, when that's, you, that's why you're most motivated to continue, though. So that's course, the real problem. Course, yeah. Yeah, it's like you're, that's you're what George Lucas fell prey to. Yeah, totally. Um, so when you were in, uh, in pre-production, then, uh, when, when the script was ready for suspension, what given, you know, obviously budgets are finite, um, what, yeah. what about the shoot seemed sort of most insurmountable and what breaks did you get or... What, what what did you do to achieve what you wanted? Well, I you know, that's the thing is that I, I could talk about – I mean, there were like little crises along the way. But again, yeah, realize this is my 13th movie as as a director and, and that this is – and I'd also done like maybe a dozen movies as a cinematographer before. And the vast majority of those movies have been like independent films, right? I was thinking, Jeffrey, I was thinking more so, of like what you perceived as opposed – I understand that No, no, idea. so like let me – let me I'm, I've got a point though, oh, which sorry. is that um, I, like, like – Movies having like crises is like part of the joy of filmmaking. They don't even occur to me as a problem. There are opportunities 
and I'm not being new agey about it, but it's like opportunities. This is like exciting because when it all is going smoothly, I kind of have nothing to do, <laughs> you know. But it's like when it's going wrong, you get to like show everyone, you get to be cool and solve something. So okay. it's it's really fun, and I I have it's not an issue. Like I like when everyone starts pulling their hair out is when I like get a big smile on my face. So it's really like that's what it's like for me. But um, let me say this is that. I actually experienced on this movie less of that than ever. And I think part of it was because we structured it so that I had the kind of control that I've never had before in the movie. That's something that was usually like when I make a movie, I'm working with other people, with partners that have a lot more power than I have, like because they're financing the movie, for instance, right? It's their money. So it's their movie. They hired me. They could fire me in a second. They might very well do that. It certainly happened in the past, could happen in the future, right? So it's kind of like, so, so you'd never get your, I mean, you do get your way a lot of the times because they did hire you to make decisions, right? So you might get your way 90% of the time, right? But there's still going to be a bunch of times where you're not. And, and and those it doesn't take a lot of decisions to spoil a movie. Like a lot of it, it's you know it's the nature of a thing that just even like one bad decision can totally fuck an entire movie up. So it gets very frustrating. That's my experience of of work. And at the end of the day, you go well. You know, if you're so smart, you should just go do it yourself, right? So <laughs> you have to structure it that way, and you really have to be. You have to if you want that power, you have to bring the money somehow. You got to find. You have to finance it, and you have to control how the money flows. You can't even hire someone else to decide how the money is spent. It's your decision, mm. right? And that's the only way to actually control it. And and so we structured it that way. And it's like the first time I'd ever done that in my you know career as a filmmaker. And it was a joy to have that kind of you know maybe I'm a megalomaniac, but I had a kind of freedom as a filmmaker. You know, and I'm kind of also, again, I've made a lot of movies in a lot of positions, so I'm, I'm not – yes, I need a team of people to make a movie because you can't make a movie on your own. Mm -hmm. But I also know how to play a lot of different positions. So when there's a crisis or a problem, I don't feel like I'm at the mercy of it. I can often easily come up with 12 ways to solve it. So it was a real joy. Uh, I had this kind of army at my fingertips – that was like treating me as a leader and I got to inspire them and we made the movie I wanted to make and I had a lot more creative freedom even though the budget was quite low hmm. it's kind of as a sweet spot and here's my theory about micro budget filmmaking there's a sweet spot which is where you kind of like you know whatever the parad local paradigm is for a micro budget movie where people are willing to show up for like a tiny like a honorarium Right, mm -hmm. like in this, you know, you get everyone to show up for a hundred dollars, right? So it's like the cash shows up for a hundred dollars a day, crew shows up for a hundred dollars a day, whatever that is, right? Mm -hmm. In your in your world, and then you just kind of say it's that movie, and there's going to be a cap. Like really, you can't do that and, and have a five million dollar budget. That would be completely no one would everyone would think you're a complete asshole, right? But if you have like say a hundred thousand dollars, people get it. Right, and they might be willing to do that. So, if you do that kind of movie, then what happens is you're in this kind of free paradigm, because now things don't really cost money anymore. I mean, they cost an honorarium, hmm. but you know, like I've made movies where I have like literally, you know, twenty times that amount of money, and we have no resources. Like I can't rehearse actors because we can't afford to, or we can only get sixteen days of shooting, or you know, uh, post production is only like a, three, a two week director cut. Or there's all these restrictions, 
because it, everything costs money. But when you're in this free scenario, all of a sudden it's like you're it's kind of like you have an infinite budget. Is it? Do you think it's the psychological thing of obviously if you if you're on the five million dollar budget movie, then everybody's going to work and they've got their job to do, and that's what they're responsible for because they get paid for it. Whereas if you're on that kind of honorarium thing. People who are there genuinely want to be there and they want the film to succeed. It's kind of, yeah, I think there's that part. too. That's another thing. Absolutely. Cause when, like when you're being paid a lot of money and I, I've been paid a lot of money to crew on movies in various capacities, hmm. you don't, I mean, you're there for the money, right? I mean, that's why they're <laughs> paying you all that money. So you'd really usually rather be somewhere else and you're only there cause you're getting this big paycheck, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like against your will in this weird way. Obviously, you want the paycheck, but that's like a delayed gratification. So you're willing to put up with not being with your loved ones or not going sailing or whatever it is you really wanted to do. Mm. Right. And that is like you really I mean, I'm not saying everyone on the crew is like that because like certainly I wasn't. I was so happy, you know, often so happy, not always, but often so happy to be on set because it's like excited filmmakers. I didn't care. I was being paid, not paid. I was delighted to be there. Pay me great. Don't pay me great. I was like just there. Um, so there are, you certainly have a pers- people like that on a film set. But then you do have, you know, 50, 70 percent, maybe just 30 percent people who are just they're just not happy people. Um, so but they're there. They're doing their job. and They're probably very good at it. So it's fine. Mm. That's not really the, the issue. I mean, it's just different. I mean, the enthusiasm has got positives, but then, of course, those people are probably very green and not seasoned. So, I don't know. That's got positives and negatives. Of course, of course. Now, what- the main thing is this experience of, like, power and control that I had that is was kind of, like, eclipsed my experience on any other movie. And but I guess, again, I, I was going to I was going to add that maybe, as well, if you felt like that, then arguably it would it would be emitted to people in the way that you dealt with them. You, if you felt yeah. that much control then you weren't trying to wrestle it from somewhere that's in the background. You were trying to sort of, I guess, get the film made and bring everyone with you because you knew that yeah. you, you knew that you were the, you were the, you were the reason to go forward as opposed to a heap of instructions that say you can't do this. You must do that. And so on and so forth. Totally. And I think a lot of people, you know, we all have this romanticized view of filmmaking as this kind of like artistic vision, right? But we find ourselves working on sets and that's not the reality. It's like a corporate thing. A lot of people who are high up, you suddenly realize how frustrated they are. Like you're working with a director and director is completely frustrated with what the director has to shoot that's in the script, right? Or even the producers are unhappy with it. Right, but they're shooting it anyway, and it's like because it's TV or because it's like that's just what it is. It's what the studio wants, so we just do what the studio says, and that's like normal life. So when you do that for like lots and lots of times, and then occasionally get to work on something that is like a true artistic vision, someone who's passionate about it and they're trying to realize their vision. Well, then as a craftsperson, you know, an experienced cinematographer or gaffer, art director, costume, whatever. Those, those craftspeople are really excited to work on those shows. You know, not necessarily like all the time because they don't come with paychecks, those shows. But they certainly want to, on occasion, mm. do a show like that. And it's like just so refreshing and like, oh, yeah, this is why I got into this industry. Yeah, I'm not being paid on this one, but it's like, you know, really great. I believe in the movie. So you have people like that. So, um, so those people that are going to head over to the Prince Charles to see your movie – um, what are you most excited about the Frightfest audience reacting to or experiencing as part of your film? 
Wow. Well, I put a lot of thought into the audience experience in this movie. Okay. Like a lot of thought. Like it was really about, you know, creating this audience experience. Like there's this kind of, it's all designed to create this very specific series of revelations and epiphanies at the end. Mm-hmm. And it's in a, a really cool ride when they start hitting. And I would love to see that. I'd love to see how the audience, like, who kind of picks up on what. We've got a lot of clues in there and Easter eggs. And the smart people, really smart people can, like, kind of, like, you know, decipher a lot of what's happening if they're paying attention in the first, like, we've got some clues in the first three minutes. Like, if you're really focused, you can, like, some people have caught those things. And I love that. But then the movie is still a great ride because you're still then like checking to see if your theory is correct. And then like there's all sorts of other things you're not going to get, I promise you. <laughs> and uh, even though the clues are there, it all come together at the end. So um, that's really fun. Uh, and then there's like the sequence in the middle, okay. which is like just pure candy. Where <laughs> everything I said about gore before, yeah. just toss it out the window. And it's just a pure gore sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, that is just like, you know, you get with the right audience, you get this, this laughter starts building and building and building and often applause at the end. And I would love you to be there to see that at Fright Fest. Yeah. So the pure gore sequence. Right in the middle. There's this like, it's like an intermission in the movie. (laughs) It's just like, it's just candy. Now yeah. then, uh, let's remind people then when they can see Suspension. When is it showing? Uh, suspension is playing Monday, the uh, 31st at 12.50 p.m. That's 10 to 1 at the Prince Charles Theatre off of uh, Leicester Square. And, um, yeah, it's the U.K. premiere, and I'm really excited about it. Right, okay. Now, uh, Britflix um, is... Usually a podcast for British filmmakers. That's what I usually get mm-hmm. to cover. But because right. because Fright Fest is such a big British event, I get to speak to people from around the world for once. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> just to bring me back on message, I um, want to ask you what your favourite British horror film is. Well, I mean Stanley Kubrick is British, right? I mean, can we call can we call The Shining a British horror film, or is that like? I'm not sure you could get away with that. Is that wrong? Because <laughs> I got in enough trouble for American Wealth in London. I mean, to me, it's you know, it's not like where the film was made. It's like who conceived of the movie, you know, that is the you know the artist, right? I'm, is, I'm not going to force. I, I'll take The Shining. I love the film. The Shining. You got it. You have to. You have to accept this one. <laughs> Is there um, is there an official release date for suspension for those people who are listening that might not be going to Fright Fest? Um, there is in uh, the U.S. Um, okay. It's we are going to have a theatrical in the U.S. in a few months, um, okay, cool. but it's like secret still. Okay. Uh, and then I don't know what's going to happen in Europe yet. We're just uh, starting to look at those deals as we speak. So I certainly hope so. Brilliant. Well, look. Good luck with suspension yeah. Fright Fest. Thank you. It's been a joy, pleasure talking to you guys. Pleasure talking to you too. It's the Britflix Fright Fest Preview Podcast Series 2015. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, 
Just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.